0: You're listening to Mastering Retention, presented by UserWise.
1: Hi, everyone. Uh, Welcome to today's episode of the Mastering Retention podcast. I am uh, super excited to have Caitlin Kincaid on with us today. Um, We're going to be talking all about game economy design today. I think uh, it's something that I never really hear too much about. I don't see a lot of information out there about, but I feel like game economies are so essential to uh, every game. Like, you know, if you look behind every successful monetization uh, strategy, there's a economy that drives it and it makes a lot of sense. Um, but uh, people don't seem to, to give it a lot of time. So hopefully we can yeah. share some really great insights today um, and uh, help everyone make better economies. Um, so, yeah, sounds Caitlin, great. I would love to just hear a little bit about your story, uh, sure. how you got into games, and, and what you're doing today.
0: <laughs> yeah, great. Well, I've been in um, game design now for um, wow, almost eleven years. So <laughs> I got my start working on uh, the Secret World at Funcom in Montreal, and very quickly after I, I started as a you know little junior designer. Um, when I joined when I joined the company, I was all I. I God like, oh, I finally get to work on an MMO. I was so excited because <laughs> I was a big World of Warcraft fan. I played um, you know, City of Heroes. I've played uh, Anarchy Online, all those, those older MMOs. And I was so excited to finally get to work on one. And one of the things I always like to do in these MMOs is get filthy rich that that that's that is my that that was my end game at the time um you know some people did rating some people did you know pvp i i played the auction house <laughs> so when i finally started working at uh funcom you know i went in i'm like okay so you know what's what's your economy like like we're using um you know a, a trading post what's your your listing fees like how are you balancing out the the currency drops how are you dealing with you know soul binding or any kind of uh trading restrictions or is everything everything completely open and the poor poor lead designer was like um well we're putting in a trading post and i was like okay what else and he's like uh Uh we're 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 putting in a trading post Uh so (laughs) they hadn't really done a whole lot of design at that point but bless his soul he recognized in me this, this passion this drive to understand this and so he took me under his wing and he's like okay we're gonna let you do the economy on this MMO. Now, I'm going to supervise you to make sure you don't completely burn it to the ground. But um, <laughs> you know, we're you know, because you have such a a drive for this, such a passion for it, and you've got experience with like how to get rich in MMOs, which is something none of the other designers really had. You know, he saw the the potential in me and helped. Grow that as a, as a junior designer, and yeah, I found I found my love. I found my, my love for economics. Um, my my schooling was originally in computer science, so uh, a, a social science of economics didn't really enter into my my schooling. But after getting into the games industry, I started discovering all about how you know, the economics and specifically behavioral economics, which is kind of the the terrifying union of economics and psychology, uh, how that plays into people making decisions within games. Like, do I go to this zone and kill bears or do I go to this other zone and run dungeons? Well, yeah, some of that is like, okay, which is more fun, but also is which is more rewarding. And how is it rewarding? Is it a guaranteed reward? Is it a, a random reward? And knowing how to put those different reward structures into a game can give players a wide variety of experiences so it's not always the same thing over and over and over again. So yeah, I got started and, and that way back in that uh, way back in my junior days. And I've basically just built my entire career around that. <laughs> I've worked on multiple AAA games, handling their um, their economics either as a sort of single-player-ish game or as a big, uh, massively multiplayer game. And then I moved over moved over to Europe and started working on mobile titles, and working in those for both the uh, the in-game economics as well as the monetization design, which are very linked, very linked. So yeah, that's, that's basically what I've been doing. And now I'm a lead economic and monetization designer. So that's basically my, my jam. Well,
1: that's, that's fantastic. Quite the journey. Yeah. I, I know something that you said that struck me offhand, um, and I don't know if you looked this up, but it seemed like you just knew it off the top of your head, and that was the uh, the gold cap of World of Warcraft for their vanilla. And it was a very specific number. and I, I was like, oh, it, it, yeah, it
0: was uh, two hundred and fourteen thousand gold and change. Uh, the reason why I knew that is because it was a the the Warcraft team at the time stored their currency as an integer max int of uh, copper. So they don't actually store gold and silver and copper mm. separately. It's all just everything is measured in coppers. <laughs> and they had uh, they had max int at the time. And since then, they've gone up to a long. So now they have over, um, I think the it's hard cap now at uh, 10 million, 20 million, mm. more than I've got anyway, way more than I've got. <laughs> But um, yeah, at the time it was uh, two hundred fourteen thousand. I know that because I was getting very close to hitting it. Uh, I, I owned the glyph market on my server for all of Wrath of the Lich King, and if you bought a glyph, you bought my glyph. So that's that's how I that's how I got stinking rich in in um, World of Warcraft in in Wrath of the Lich King.
1: That's awesome. I love it. Cool, cool. All right. Well, um, let's dig in. So. Maybe a, a good way to start is what exactly is a game economy or, or what is game economy design? Why does it matter? Why should I think about it? You know, what's the importance behind it? Well, there's
0: there's really two different questions. There's the the game economy and the game monetization. And both of those go hand in hand. I mean, you can't have a game that monetizes Without having some sort of concept of value within the game, so when you're when you're first doing a prototype, uh, when you've got like it's like okay, we're going to make a you know a match three game or a shooter game or a um, you know a, a party game or whatever type of game we're making. On that very first date, you should be deciding what it is you're selling. That doesn't have to be crazy detail, but you should at least have a concept of what it is. And the reason why I say this is that your, your game is what gives the stuff in your cash shop value. Um, so you need to build your game in such a way that the stuff you're selling is important to the player, that the player looks at it and says, oh, man, I really want this thing. Because if they don't have that excitement, then you're really just putting in a paywall. You're... You're, you're, you're forcing players, you're tricking players. And that's never a good uh, emotional experience for the player. You want the player to, to buy something and tell their friends how awesome it is. That is the, that is the goal of, a, of good monetization design. So if you understand very early on, like, okay, we're selling, you know, the, the example I usually use is Hearthstone. Like they knew day one, what are we selling? We're selling packs of Hearthstone cards. And they built the game to make you want more cards. Mm. And like they, they, they show off cool effects. They have this awesome visuals. They You always want more and more cards. And they're always releasing more and more content with more and more cards in it in order to make you want more and more cards. So they built the game to make the stuff in the cash shop valuable. Mm. Um, another example of this would be um, to go into the, the, the PC world, uh, Warframe is a a wonderful example, they sell uh, a lot of cosmetic items. So their game is a third person shooter. So you're always back behind your your character looking over their shoulder, which means you always see what you look like. You always see this cool flowing cape that you bought. You always see these really awesome shoulder pad armor that you earned in the game Mm -hmm. or these really cool color combinations. They make you look at what is so awesome that they're selling. You know because they they made the game to make the stuff that they're selling have value because they decided very early on they didn't want to be selling uh, power. they they want to be selling cool looking stuff. Yeah. so they made a game that let you see the cool looking stuff. So knowing very early on what it is you're selling can allow you to focus your game around that, to make a a coherent uh, core loop. That includes what you're selling. I mean, every every person, every, we've all played those those free-to-play games that have, you know, I call it the, the monetization tumor, which is mm-hmm. this ugly growth on the side of an otherwise awesome game. <laughs> I can guarantee almost without exception that those games that you've played that have that terrible feeling monetization that it was added in the last six months.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: They had a good core loop and then they're like, oh crap, how are we going to make money? And they broke their game to plug in this 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 monetization tumor. And yeah, because if you make a perfect core core loop that doesn't include your monetization, you have to break the game to put it in. And the players will feel that. They'll feel like, oh, okay, yeah, they're just trying to get me to pay money. And again, that doesn't give the good experience. And yeah, the the economic design kind of goes hand in hand with that because you can't have a uh, desire without lacking something. <laughs> you know, it, it, if all of your needs are met and there is no, uh, there's no struggle, then why would I put money in? Why would I pay five bucks for a thing that I can get for free with little effort? Mm. You know, there has to be some sort of, just like there has to be a desire, which is the, as I was mentioning about building your game around it, but there also has to be a, uh, a a trade-off between how much is it going to take for me to earn this thing versus how much is it going to take for me to just buy it? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, in some games like, yeah, I can, I can earn a really awesome skin in, um, in Warframe. I can go out and I can farm up all the stuff you know, I, I can unlock it, everything, or I can just say, like, you know what, it's like three bucks. <laughs> I'll just get paid three bucks and you know, buy the hard currency, trade the hard currency to another player who has already unlocked it. Mm. And then that player gets a little bit of hard currency. I get the the thing that I want. And you know, then then everybody wins. They get to to get some free stuff and I get cool thing. And the developer gets money, so <laughs> you know, everybody wins. But yeah. yeah, understanding the the amount of effort that needs to go into unlocking a thing for free is also very important, because you don't want your game to be, uh, or at least you don't want too much of your game to be exclusively uh, for sale. Mm. You do want there to be an actual game in a free-to-play game that is free you need to make the the non player the non payer experience sorry um, pleasant and enjoyable and a complete title because if the the free players are feeling like oh i'm just here as as content for the whales they're again they're not going to have a good time and you need a, a a large enough amount of players for there to be a full community within your title so it's important to, to understand the, the psychology of how players are thinking. Like I mentioned earlier with behavioral economics, uh, it's very m- important to understand why people make uh, the economic decisions that we make. Uh, the standard economic model is it's great for computers <laughs> uh, because it assumes that people are 100% logical and always thinking about the big picture and have perfect information, which I can guarantee you is not how anybody in the history of the world has ever behaved. If it was, every person would have, you know, we'd be contributing the max amount to our retirement plan every single month. We'd be saving and investing. And yeah, I don't know anybody who does that. (laughs) Not a single person. So we are, irrational but we're predictably irrational we make predictably bad choices
2: mm-hmm.
0: and understanding why players make those predictably bad choices allows a good economic designer to make sure that that unoptimal path is still fun you have to make sure you know a friend of mine always says like players will optimize the fun out of a game if you let them They will find the most optimal path to try and squeeze every little bit of reward out of the game. Even if it's really unfun, Mm. You have to make sure that the, 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 the the path of most fun and the path of best reward are pretty close to each other in order to have the best, the the best results from your players going through that experience.
1: Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. You know, if, I've been talking to a lot of studios that are kind of mid-sized lately in that like 50 to 60 person range. And a lot of them seem to have similar goals, which is, you know, I really want to create a game that lasts for 10 years. And at the end of 10 years, you know, it's still thriving, maybe even growing. Um, And it seems like a lot of them have really... You know, they've had some pretty good games, but once you get to like year four or five, things just seem to kind of slip and fall away and, you know, take the follow up title. Um, You know, if I was to come to you today and I said, Caitlin, can you help me figure out, you know, how do I begin? correctly such that, you know, this game is designed from a core, you know, economic standpoint to be able to last for 10 years. Like I know, uh, another game that I was talking to, is like, you know, I just wish we'd spent like two days spending more time on the economy because now that yeah. this game is like five days in, you know, our elder players just don't have enough depth to really, you know, continue yeah. on in the game. And we're really concerned it's going to die soon. Um, so how, how do I, you know, approach that the right way from, from day one, so to speak?
0: so really it comes down to holding like holding the idea of a strong economy as a design pillar when you're making new features when you're deciding what rewards to put in when you're deciding how are players going to going to to spend this resource within the title you you need to have that that five year that 10 year plan in mind like when i get to max level and I'm no longer, you know, upgrading buildings or buying more units or, you know, making my magic sword more magical, what am I spending on? (laughs) Because yeah, eventually, you know, if if a player plays long enough, they will eventually hit max level. And the answer to that question can't be, oh, we're just gonna add more levels because you can't add levels fast enough. I can guarantee you that if, if you're trying to beat the players on a content treadmill, you will lose that race every time because the the players will consume content probably a hundred to a thousand times faster than you think they will. Like if you think, oh, okay, this is going to take them like, you know, two or three months, eh, two or three days, you're going to have players hitting the end of that content. And especially if they are big spending players, which are the ones you really want to keep the hold of, Mm -hmm. they're the ones who are going to hit the end of the content the fastest. So you need to make sure that you have those infinite spends uh in place and ready to go and they need to be in place and ready to go like early uh soft launch early beta uh not this isn't something you should be testing um like close to close to uh, end of launch or or after global launch uh you really want these things to be Even if if they're not in game, they should at least be in the design pipeline. You should have an idea, like the design team should know, okay, this is how we're going to address this problem. Mm. Because um, players hitting the end of content and having nothing further to spend their resources on, uh, that creates a hyperinflationary state where they're just gaining more and more resources and they can't really spend it on things, which puts a developer in a really rough situation when they do eventually decide to increase the level cap or to add new content. Because if you've got these elder players who have you know, millions and millions of resources sitting in their bank with nothing to spend on, then in order to Make things feel impactful for them. You have to have a very, very high price. But for a new player who just hit max level that day, they don't have this this massive bankroll. So you can't expect them to pay this insanely inflated price. So what do you do? You're, you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why having these these uh, these infinite spends are so important within your within your game design in order to give these players who have insane amounts of uh, of resources saved up, a way to to sync them before you start trying to give uh, mandatory spends. You want the, the optional spends to take care of that. So understanding what the, the sync rate is for the, I must have this in order to progress and the sync rate for, hey, I've got some extra resources. I want to dump them into cool extra stuff, mm-hmm. whatever your extra stuff might be and how fast they can they can do that in order to keep up the slack because some players will always generate more resources than they spend some players will try and spend more resources than they can generate <laughs> and it's important to try and keep those keep those two players relatively close together
1: yeah that's it's interesting i you know, thinking about that, the only example that I'm thinking of is uh, Clash of Clans. And I, I admittedly, I think they added this way too late, but they now have the ability where you can do these like uh, dark troop up upgrades where you can spend like 25,000 and, you know, dark elixir and and upgrade your archers to be like dark archers or whatnot. Mm -hmm. Um, And that to me feels more of like an infinite spend because like once you've upgraded all your heroes all the way, like what are you possibly going to do with that dark elixir? You're just going to like store it there or whatnot. Um, Do you have any other like examples? Like let's say I decided to make like a a match three kind of candy crush style game. Like what sort of, you know, infinite uh, sync could I create for elder players? Because I'm, I'm sure everyone's listening, and they're like, "Oh, that's a cool idea," but you know, what could I possibly it's, do?
0: Again, it's it's a thing that's very much dependent on uh, the the title that you're making. Uh, you really have to uh, select select the proper spend for 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 the content that you're you're dealing with. So, I mean, like a match three they generally don't have very big uh, faucets in terms of uh, generating uh, either coins or boosts or what have you. Um, and <laughs> do they really have much of a max level? <laughs> I mean, like if you get, like, honestly, how many levels are there in Candy Crush? I have no idea. It's an insanely high number. I'm sure there's somebody who's there, <laughs> but realistically would they be a huge portion of the player base that they would need to balance around
2: mm.
0: so for like a, a typical match 3 game i don't see this as being a big issue uh, unless you're giving the players like a lot of boosts and they're not using them that's another problem um you know that's the uh the uh the i'm going to save this health potion until i really need it problem <laughs> Um, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but when I was uh, when I was young and I used to play all sorts of um, like uh, Nintendo games or, or role playing games, especially like the old Baldur's Gate games, it's like, oh, yeah. man, I've got oh, a, yeah. a superior healing potion. I've got to save that for when I really, really need it. <sighs> oh, that was the final boss. I never used my superior healing potion. <laughs> and yeah, you, you get into situations where you've got like this super valuable thing, which you never touch mm-hmm. because you're afraid of wasting it. So you need to um, encourage players like, okay, yeah, you can use these things frequently because we're going to be giving you them frequently. So we've got to encourage you to use them frequently. Um, I'm not sure if you ever played uh, City of Heroes, but they had a wonderful system in that game um, called the Inspirations. And a player could hold, uh, depending on your level, it was between 4 and I think it capped out at 16 or was it 20 of these, uh, these Inspirations. And they were pretty powerful and they stacked. So like if you used like four um, uh, damage resistance uh, uh, inspirations, you'd get like four copies of the same boost. So if you used a whole bunch of them, it was like you were on fire. (laughs) Um, You're like, you're just blowing up everything nearby. But um, when they dropped, um, if your inventory was full, you wouldn't even know that that one had dropped. Mm-hmm. So you were always leaving at least one or two slots open in case you got one of the really big, like uh, the, the 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 large sized boosts that you could save for later, and you'd always be using the small ones because they were super common. But with having a inventory cap, you were always using them. So you because you always wanted that one empty spot just in case you got one of the the big sized ones that you then you'd save that one for later. But the the small ones you'd use over and over. So having that was, uh, you know, it it taught the player, use use them or lose them, basically. And a similar thing can be used in a uh, a match three game where, you know, it's like, okay, you can only hold five boosts. Oh, you've got five boosts. Use one because your inventory is full. And then you can use that to train the player. Okay, you got to use your boosts, and then we're going to slowly over time increase the amount of inventory you can, you can have. And of course, if they use all of their boosts, well, now we have to pay in order to to refill their inventory. Yeah. So that that's where you can train the player and also encourage the player to spend. So knowing what type of title you're making can really help. Uh, Define what uh, what types of sinks you're using based on the the resource in question. Um, like a uh, a 4x game, like um, State of Survival, Talk War, any of those sorts of games where you're you're going out and you're harvesting resources on a map. Um, those can be really tricky because. Um, like you need to have a certain faucet rate that the player can generate these with in order to keep up with, you know, making new buildings, making new units, uh, doing research, et cetera. But then when you get to the end of that list, that, that sink rate drops to zero. So now you've got all this faucet with no sink. Mm. So that's one of those situations where I was mentioning earlier, where you need some sort of end game infinite sink that the player can just dump all of that excess resource into in order to be able to, um, keep them from inflating yeah. infinity.
1: Future content. I really love that. Um, so we actually have a lot of product managers and game designers that love to listen to this podcast. <laughs> so from a game economist standpoint, you know, what are yeah. some things that you feel like every game product manager or game designer should know about the game economy. Um, You know, if, if somebody started today, what are the things you're going to sit down and teach them about to make sure that they're uh, thinking about the economy from the right way?
0: The biggest thing for, from a design standpoint for, for, for other designers is to understand the difference between your mandatory sinks and your optional sinks. So a player must spend resources on, this in order to progress through the game, versus a player can choose whether or not to spend resources on why in order to progress through the game. And making sure that you understand when you're balancing your economy, you know you want your mandatory sinks to be slightly under your faucets in order to keep players feeling like they can keep up, that you're not uh, milking them for money. Like, oh, okay, I can't keep up. The only way for me to keep up is to spend money. That's not a good feeling from the player. You want them to be able to feel like they can keep up with all the mandatory spends with a, a um, with a free game. But when they start having the optional spends, that's where you want the the sync rate to really increase. You, If your player wants to keep all the optional sinks going, that's when they need to spend money in order to keep up. Um, or do some uh, some extra so something extra on top of the the base gameplay. Like maybe um, they have to complete their their weekly challenges and their daily challenges, and uh, you know all of their PvP challenges and all their PVE challenges, and basically become a huge amount of content for other players. Mm-hmm. And that can sometimes be worth more than the money they would actually provide for uh, buying the resources from the store so understanding what the optional sinks are what the mandatory sinks are and how you want players to pay for each of them um, how much effort you want players to put in in order to be able to keep up with each of these things individually because um, players you know I, I mean I'm I'm not a spring chicken anymore I'm not in high school I can't I can't spend you know, fifteen hours a day playing playing games on my phone. That sooner or later, I want to take a break. Yeah. You know, I, I want to you know play with my kitten. I want to have some fun. You know, spend time with my husband, <laughs> spend time with my family. And you you, you can't expect players to be hundred percent on all the time in your title. So you also need to understand how much of a of a break you want players to be able to take from your game. You know, it's important to understand um, efficiency. Like, uh, again, going back to uh, the 4X games, like State of Survival, okay, you send out your units to, to gather resources off the map and they come back home. Well, how much time do we expect the player to spend away from the game before they send them out again?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, if, if it's supposed to be like three seconds, okay, I have to log back into the game and send them out right away. That's too demanding on the player's time. They're going to find it uh, the game too needy, uh, especially in the Western markets, Um, but, uh, if it's too long, like, oh, okay, you know, it can be like three days. We don't care. Then the players who are back in five minutes are going to be generating way more than you're expecting. Mm. So that's what I'd really want the designers to know from the product managers. Um, I think the single biggest piece of advice I can give is on all of your design documents, all of your you know, planning, feature planning, whatever they're called within your organization, have just one line on what KPI this feature is supposed to impact. So is this a monetization feature? Is this a retention feature? Is this a uh, conversion feature? Is this a feature that we're putting in because it's really marketable and it can bring down our cost per installs, but Every single one of these needs to be a measurable thing, and the reason why I say this is I've worked in quite a few studios uh, in the past where this wasn't the case, and it became impossible to measure whether a given feature was actually successful. Because you know, when you when you put out a patch, like there's a lot of individual features which will go live in any, yep. indivi- any individual patch, so okay, our retention went up. Well, which of these features was supposed to be dealing with retention? Was it early retention? Was it late retention? You know, we put in a feature that was supposed to impact monetization and it kind of didn't. Like, did it work or did it not? And if you, don't ha- if you don't know what these things are supposed to be measured with, you really can't say for sure whether or not it actually worked. So just a single line that says, okay, this is a blank feature. Um, you don't have to have like hard numbers like, oh, we want day one to go up by 1.3%. No, you don't need to be that specific. Just say early game retention. And then when you start getting the data back from that path, you can evaluate each of these features and say, okay, this one worked, this one worked, this one didn't. And either of these last two worked, we're not sure if it was A or B. Mm. Then you can go dig into more detail and decide, okay, well, which of these is worth uh, investing in? which of these should we double down on and which of these was a good idea, but just the execution wasn't quite right. And we're going to try again and see if we can actually make it impact the thing we want it to. Hmm. I mean, sometimes I've worked at you know, projects where, okay, we release a feature that's supposed to impact day one retention, but we find out, oh no, it's actually impacting day seven retention. <laughs> okay, why? And because we knew what it was supposed to do versus what it actually did, we could dig into the data and find out, OK, this is how players are actually using it. Mm. You know, one of the things I like to say is that um, by definition, players can't play your game wrong, but you can design it wrong. <laughs> so you've got to look at what the data of what the players are actually doing in your title that that is by far the most valuable thing you can have as a designer is honest player data because when we're when we're making the games when we're doing our prototypes when we're in pre-production and production you know a lot of the a, a lot of it is our our professional best guesses basically you know we're, we're trying like okay i've got this well of knowledge and i'm using that knowledge to say okay this sword should cost this amount of gold OK, but until I get actual players playing the game and seeing, OK, players are generating more gold than I think they should, I need to increase the price of this sword to, to match that. You know, I can I can simulate using my best guesses until the end of time, but having actual real player data to refine those simulations is what takes a eh, economy to a stellar economy. Um, use your soft launch data it is by a huge margin the most valuable asset in your company is your soft launch data because that's what allows you to take that, that, that that's the only way you can move the needle on your on your title that's the only way you can make those retention numbers those monetization numbers better is by looking at your data and optimizing for it if you're not reviewing data, Ideally daily, if not week, you know, weekly at the absolute latest is is what you should be reviewing your data. Um, preferably daily, you should be looking through the data and saying, okay, this is what players are doing, this is how they're spending. We um, release a new patch. Here's what's changing. Here's what the data is showing, and are these things matching up the way we expect them to? Because so, it's it's really important to, to to dig into that data and to understand what it's really meaning.
1: Yeah. So so I hear, you know, people preaching about data all the time. And I'm one of them. And I love data. Um, but sometimes I feel like there is so much of it that it is difficult to really get a clear picture of like, okay, how are my players actually engaging in the game? Like, do you have any tips and like do you find that it's useful to look at an individual player and look at their session by session things to see like, okay, what exactly did they do on this given day? Or is it more about, you know, looking in aggregate or like, do you have any tips or tricks for, you know, people trying to get better at data analysis to glean those insights? That's
0: such a tricky question because again, it's kind of like, what, what questions are you asking? <laughs> um, your data is only as good as your questions um you can have perfect knowledge but if you aren't asking the right questions it's just a database it's just an sql database there there's there's no knowledge yeah but understanding what questions to ask is important so yeah sometimes looking at an individual player is is the right answer especially if you've got an outlier that you want to optimize for like okay this is a whale this person has just dropped $20,000 on day 1 Okay, I, I want to know what this person is spending on. I, I want to know individual clicks, what they're doing. I, I, I want timestamps. I want everything about this player. You know, if he puts his phone down for five minutes to go to the bathroom, I want to know <laughs> because this is something I want to optimize for. But if it's you know, another question like, okay, how is the inflation rate in my game? Well, looking at an individual player is not going to help you. You need to look at a population of players. And again, knowing how to um, filter your data is, is also important. Like if you're looking at inflation rates, you might want to look um, like between the 10th and 90th percentile of your players to, to filter out the, those on the, the extremes. Uh, you may want to filter based on an individual patch. Like, mm. um, you know, okay, I want players who join between patch 1.6 and 2.3 and see how they behave with, it, with regards. So, knowing which questions to ask is really where you get the value out of your data. And yeah, having someone who can. You know, having a data expert in the company who can take those questions and you know take take those questions from the designers and massage it out of the spreadsheet and give you those pretty graphs—they <laughs> are worth their weight in gold. <laughs> oh, straight up, no lie, they true. are worth their weight in gold to a company because they will save so much time from your designers who. Yeah, I mean, you don't want to pay a designer to be spending three or four days digging through a spreadsheet of, of live data instead of making new features for your game. Yep. But you still need that data. So right. having someone who's, whose expertise is on that, instead of it taking them two or three days, it might take them 15, 20 minutes <laughs> because th- that is their expertise. They can do it way faster. Yep. So being able to get that data out of the game quicker allows those designers to move to 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 react sooner.
1: Yeah, that's great. So, uh, moving back just a little bit, so you know, we are kind of talking about features and you know the importance of having a metric that you're tracking or a goal with this feature. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Um, so something that I've heard uh, a lot of gaming companies starting to like to do is uh, first, they like to start harsher and then you know be more rewarding over time uh, just to protect yep. things. But two, I've heard of a lot of people that like to rather than releasing a feature as like an entirely new feature, can we release that feature first? As a time-limited event, so that we have time to see the effects, measure those, and then kind of roll them out. Like, is that something that you would recommend from a game economy type standpoint? Is that something you've done? It's, you know, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I on
0: mean, that? it's it has its use. Like, one of the great things about doing stuff like that is um, you insulate yourself against unexpected problems. You know, if you release an event and either through human error or through some systemic issue, like it's way more rewarding than you planned it to be. Well, if it's only out live for a week, the overall impact to your game is probably going to be fairly minimal. Um, it's not going to completely tank your entire project. But if you make it as a, a permanent feature and it's got this problem, well, you've just moved your baseline of how your economy works permanently. So if it's too rewarding, then your entire game is now too rewarding. So releasing these things as events allows you to basically live test your, it's an A-B test on your economy, basically. You can test to make sure it's rewarding enough. You can test to make sure that it's worth worth the player's time as well that the players will actually utilize this content. One of the things you don't want to have is to spend huge amounts of, of company resources making a new feature, releasing it to your players, and the players are just like, eh, I don't care. I mean, it's nice, but eh, I'm not gonna spend money on it. That's, yeah. that, that is like, oh man, that's such a terrible thing to, 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 to spend resources on, Whereas, if it's an event, you can make it smaller. It doesn't have to be a huge game-wide, um, <clears throat> a huge game-wide um, experience. It can just be this small little. Oh, it's a little one-week thing. Yeah, I give it a try, you know. Um, and it also won't be something that the player has to permanently think about as well. If it's just an event, mm-hmm. you know, the 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 burden on the player can be smaller. If you add a new feature that's not very rewarding but increases the amount of effort the player has to put in just to do their daily tasks, it can it can really increase the amount of player burden and lead to faster burnout and more churn. So it's definitely a, a good idea in games where it makes sense. Mm. Um, in you know some some features, no, you want it to be it needs to be game wide because that's the only way that particular feature will will work. You know it needs to be something that works across all, like um, if you're adding uh, hero units or um, if you're adding he- hero units to War- Warcraft 3, well, obviously <laughs> you need to be able to use hero units in any map, like yep. it needs to work across every map. It needs to work throughout the game. It needs to work in multiplayer. <laughs> that is a, a game spanning uh, um, feature set but oh hey we want to do a cool halloween event and have these special ghost tiles in our match three game and if you match a bunch of them you get a special word okay well that makes more sense for a um a a one-off event and then maybe if the event is super awesome and really monetized as well you might turn that into a regular feature across all the levels and instead of it being ghost tiles it's gummy bear tiles or Mm -hmm. whatever the 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 framing of your particular match three is (laughs) so. I mean, I'm trying to give very general advice because I don't want to be like, okay, this is how you do it here in this type of game. And as you said, someone else is like, well, that's great, but I'm not making that game. Yeah, so I'm trying to say like different types of games, you know, this works well for different types of games, maybe not so much.
1: Yeah, no, that's really great. Uh, so looping back again uh when we were talking to game designers on you know what is the most important thing they should be thinking about different types of sinks and Honestly, I've actually never thought about this before. So this was really fascinating to me. Like, uh, I won't claim to have a lot of expertise in game economy design, especially compared to you, Caitlin. But uh, the way that I've always tried to do it is um, I like to sync up a spreadsheet and I have kind of a row by row of like, let's say it's it's player levels. And I kind of can outline, you know, how much currency and stuff are they getting between level one and two and three and four. Um, and then kind of have my syncs there. And then there's a graph at the bottom with... With, you know, red is my um, sinks and my sources are blue, maybe. And then over time, you know, they should be very close together. And as the player levels up, they start to separate apart. And that's where kind of the monetization happens. Um, But you actually outlined something that I, I really, really like, which is the idea of, you know, can we keep those core player progression you know, sources and sinks, you know, pretty in line as the player is going. And, you know, they, they do increase, which increases the time that a player is spending at level 10 versus 11 or whatnot. Um, but, uh, yeah, having additional sinks that kind of layer on top of that, um, that might correlate with like, okay, if I have my really, really engaged players and they're going to do all the daily quests and all the weeklies and, you know, all those different things that they could possibly do, they're going to spend six, 10 hours a day in the game leveling mm-hmm. that now they can attain all of the, um, you know, syncs or, or maybe, yeah. maybe the optional sinks are even a little bit above that to encourage more spending and such. Um, but it's like a level such that like your core players, like everyone feels like it's, you know, as it needs to be, but then there's this, all this other cool stuff that if they really want to engage into, they can get access to, um, yeah. is that like a good way to think about it or like to have some layer of graphs, that yeah, I mean way. that's
0: a, that's yeah. Like using a, a layered graph is a, a pretty cool way of thinking of that as well. And it's not just your your super fans, your super engaged players that are going to be paying into that uh, that optional spend, but that's also where your paying players are going to be sinking in as well. So you should also be looking at okay, how much how much can I realistically spend between levels three and four. Mm. Like, if, if, if getting from levels three and four takes me X amount of days, and I can spend $500, well, then really the maximum spend is, you know, a couple hundred dollars per day. And if I'm a, you know, rich oil baroness with, you know, millions of dollars and, you know, three Lamborghinis, I might want to spend a lot more than just a few hundred dollars and your economy should let them. Like if if somebody wants to drop $50,000 on day 1 in my game, hey, awesome. I'm certainly going to let them. You know, I'm not going to say, "No, no, no. We do, we don't want your money. That that's that's bad business." <laughs> but you you want to make sure that there's stuff that they they can buy, but you also don't want them to feel like they must buy in order to progress because then the people who don't spend 50000 dollars on day one are going to feel like they're missing out. So you need to balance these out versus how much how much must I spend? how much is optimal to spend? and then how much is the maximum possible I could spend? those are sort of the three the three breakpoints that you want um, because the uh, sort of the, the power curve, if you will. Um, between the, the must spend and the optimal to spend, you know, there can be a, a bit of a gap between there. So that's where your, your super fans are going to come in and most of your paying players will just go up to the, the optimal spend. Mm. But then the difference between optimal spend and maximum spend, you know, that might be tens of thousands of dollars, but not a lot of ter- in terms of power progression. It might only be a couple of percent. But those super, super wealthy, super engaged players who really want to spend you know, crazy amounts of money to get the absolute best possible stuff in your game, that's where they're going to come in. And there are going to be very, very few players who are going to, to spend that amount of money, but you you don't want to turn them away.
1: That's but really good um, advice. Yeah, so, but- so if you're thinking about um, spend... I should be able to spend money both to progress as well as to get into those optional sinks. Right. So it's kind of a ever bloom. I I can spend a bunch of money and I can, you know, go from level one to level 20 in a day and I can also get all those. So it's kind of a, a balloon type of an effect.
0: that I'm is and I mean, it. you as a developer, one of the valuable things you can do during your soft launch is like identify your your bigger spending players and reach out to them. Like, if you've got a a, a game Discord or a um, a forum, and you you know who these if you know who these players are, reach out to them. Find out what. What they want. I mean, if you can bring them in for a, for a Zoom interview or for a Skype interview with your your designers, that is absolutely incredibly valuable information about why they spend, what they want, what they'd like more. Now you don't always have to do exactly what they say, but I mean, knowing what it is that they value, you can account for that in in future designs. Like if they are if they want more. Um, more boosts, if they want more uh, speed-ups, if they want to be able to get to the max level quicker, well, that might be, you know, something they might want to put into some of your, your bundles and some of your, um, you know, your special events that would get them to engage. If they want more more raw power, you know, then maybe you might want to, you know, if if selling power is something that you want to do in your game, you know, that's not something that, is appropriate for every title. You know, if, if you're, if you're a cosmetic selling game, they're like, Oh, we want to buy more power. Well, sorry, (laughs) this, this isn't that type of game. You know, we're, we're, we sell cosmetics. What type of cosmetics do you want to buy? Um, You know, it's important to, as I said, like when, when you decide early on what you're selling, you kind of need to stick to that. Like you, Mm. you need to be, you need to know what type of game you're making are, are you making a cosmetic game? Are you making a power game? Are you making a collection game? You know, like uh, are, are you making a, a, a Pokemon Go where the the point is got to catch them all? Well, that that's a collection game. <laughs> Collecting the things is the fun part of that game. You know, going out and and finding, you know, a, a new a new Pokemon. That's that is the fun part. And you don't want to dilute your, your title by going after the power gamers when you're not a power gaming game. Mm.
2: Um,
0: You know, know, know who you're selling to, know who your target audience is. I've worked in a few projects where it's like, Oh, well, you know, we'll, we'll find out who our target audience is during soft launch. No, you find out who your target audience is during prototyping. (laughs) That's when, that's when you decide, okay, we, we want to target, these kinds of players you know explorer players um collection players um power you know power players uh leadership players what, what sort of players do you want and if you just say we want to target everybody that means you're targeting nobody so it's it's important to know who who it is you're going after
1: mm, that's great so i i know we're getting close to time here but I'd love to just think a little bit about uh, monetization. So something mm-hmm. I've heard a lot of folks in the gaming industry talking about in the last year yeah. is that retention is more important than anything else. And I hear a lot of people say, okay, I'm going to, you know, prototype a game. And if it has X, you know, D1, D3 retention, like we can always figure out monetization later. Um, (laughs) You you mentioned something earlier of like, well, if you get a really great core loop and then you have to like force monetization into it, it kind of like breaks the game. Yes. You know, is there a correct way to go about this? And how should I think about retention and monetization together? Because they do ultimately need to work to make a great experience, right?
0: you You cannot test retention of a game without the monetization in it. And then add monetization in it and expect the retention to stay the same because you've got a different game now. Mm-hmm. The, the progression is different, the attitudes of your players has completely changed. So that like if you that, that early retention data, throw it out the window. It doesn't count anymore. You've changed the game. It's 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 invalid. So you need to have your monetization in there in order to test for the retention. And I absolutely do agree that retention is extremely important, um, especially for uh, casual to you know, ca- the, the, the core side of casual, mm-hmm. um, because those are the games that you want players to make a habit out of. Um, you don't want to try and get the maximum amount of money out of them on days one, two and three and then ignore them. <laughs> you want them to continue to spend a little bit you know it's, it's better to have a player that spends ten dollars a month on your title and plays for years than a player who drops 50 bucks on day one and you don't hear from them again after day three you'd much rather have that that small trickle of money over a long period of time um you don't want these uh like the for a yeah tripping over my words again um <laughs> for the the hyper casual market th- those are more the types of games where you want to get more of the uh more of the monetization up front because their retention numbers are usually pretty steep like they start off really great and then they drop down mm. pretty quick So for those sorts of games, yeah, you're probably going to need to optimize your monetization for early-game players simply because there aren't many late-game players. But for casual, mid-core, core core games, the longer a player plays, the more they're going to spend because they see more value in spending. Um, if um, If I'm playing a game and I see a cool a cool thing that I want to buy, like a, a, a neat cosmetic or, you know, I want to win this event because it unlocks a new hero. I'm more likely to spend on a game that I know I'm going to get value out of that thing for months or years. than if I'm just going to stop playing it in a couple of weeks. Yeah. So the, the player will value the things in the shop far more if they can see a longer term Payoff for it, um, so as a result, you can afford to charge more. And if you're if you're selling a if you're selling a hero unit to a player who's only going to play for a week, well, maybe a buck, two bucks, kind of be pushing it. But I mean, if you're selling if you're selling a hero unit in a game that the player is going to play for two or three years, well, you might be able to get twenty bucks for that same unit. And I mean, it still costs you the same amount to make the art. It still costs you the same amount of design time to to make the hero, but now instead of getting a you know a, a buck for it, you're getting twenty bucks for it. That's a huge payoff in terms of um, in terms of uh, of return on investment. Yeah. So really- yeah, get, getting that that better retention, and it's the it's the curve of the retention, not specifically the uh, the the numbers. Like if you have day one retention. Wow, that's amazing. But if your day three retention is like 30%, well, that means that 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 curve is very, Hmm. very vertical. So it's dropping down to zero relatively quickly. Uh, It's better to have a game with, say, 30% day one retention and 25% day three retention because that's a very slow drop. So you're going to have a lot more players making it to you know, day 30, day 60, day 90, day 120, than the one that had, you know, 70, 30, 15, mm-hmm. eight, two. Zero, mm, yeah. Yeah, zero. <laughs> so it's uh, looking at the, one One of the things that, that, that I do is I look at the um, uh, day three divided by day one, that gives you the the slope. And the the better you can get that slope, um, even if you, even if it means like the, the, the day one drops, but you're keeping more of those players,
2: Yeah.
0: um, cost per install, you're, you're, you're targeting, you know, you can target your players better. Cause it's like, okay, we, 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 we now know which players are staying. So now we can target those players and now we can bring up the entire curve. Mm. So yeah, it's important to know, as that brings us back to what we were saying earlier, know who you're selling to. <laughs> um, and yeah because the, the flatter you can get that curve the more of your players you can keep the longer they're going to see value for items the more they're willing to spend to get those things definitely um yeah one of the things you can you can really do to to help with that monetization as well is to use um like uh, uh, player competition events that's one thing i didn't discuss earlier but like if you're if only the top 10% of your players can earn this new hero. Well, now instead of it just being, oh, I need to spend 20 bucks, it's I need to spend 20 bucks more than the other guy. <laughs> and if the other guy's spending 100 bucks, I got to spend 120, and now he's going to see, okay, now I'm spending 120, he's going to spend 140. Now I got to spend 160, mm-hmm. and you can kind of ping-pong back. Now the value of it can can really grow up. So you can really get uh uh a far higher value for, for an item by making the players kind of fight amongst themselves for it. And then they're deciding what the value is instead of you deciding what the value is. Cause again, like I said earlier, you know, I can use my professional experience to guess what players will want to spend on this item, but you know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the players think that this item is worth a hundred times more than I think it's worth. And I'm not going to tell them no.
1: Yeah. They're, they're,
0: they're, I they're
1: actually kind of. Go ahead. Oh, I actually kind of witnessed that in in real time a, a couple of days ago. My wife has really been into like the two dots game, and there was like some yep. competition. And she's like, "I've only got like four hours. I've got to get like another eighty points. Like beat this guy so I can get in there." Yep. And I don't know if either of them were actually dropping money on the game, but I do know that she was watching like a bunch of video ads to like keep going and to try to be, yep. in. so I'm sure they were ping ponging back and forth between each other. Oh, absolutely. First absolutely. Place, so.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, that's a great way of letting, you know, letting the players tell you, you know, as I was saying earlier about getting, getting that valuable data, it lets the players tell you what something is worth because again, maybe I think it's worth 20 bucks. Maybe the players think it's worthless. And it's like, no, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna <laughs> spend a whole bunch of stuff to win this event. Look at the rewards. It's it's not it's nothing special. Yeah. So that all that is also extremely valuable data because that tells you that the rewards you think are are awesome aren't what the players are valuing. So mm-hmm. look into your data. What are the players using? What are the players, you know, what what, ex- what excites the players? And if it's not what you think it is, maybe either maybe you're not messaging to the player correctly. Maybe they don't realize, oh man, this, this thing actually is awesome. Or maybe you're thinking it's more awesome than they, than, than they, they think it is. So it's important to, to go through that data and find out, okay, what, why, why are the players playing different than what I expect them to? Cause they are playing right. <laughs> As we established earlier, the player is always right. What, what about this? Am I mistaken about Do I think it's worth too much? Do I think it's worth too little?
1: Yeah. No, that, that's fantastic. It, it really comes back to you. And I keep hearing this over and over and over again. I've been saying it for a while, but it's know and understand your audience. And the better Absolutely. you do that, the better you can design every aspect of your game, yeah. the better you can connect with monetization, yep. just everything in, in place. So if you're listening Thanks. to this today, make sure you know your audience. And there's yes. lots of different ways to do that. But I think it's a combination of qualitative and quantitative data. You got to know Absolutely. what your players are doing and why they're doing those things, and, and what they, they want in the future. And how they feel about it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> because that, that's one of the things going back to um, behavioral economics. I mean, one of the first things that my uh, my, my lead told me back at um, back at Funcom was, uh, you know, as as an economic and monetization designer, not only will you be uh, encouraged to you know make skinner boxes and exploit your players to try and get every last dime out of them not only will you be encouraged to do this but you will be rewarded for it you'll 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 get a bonus at the end of the day like if if your if your game makes significantly more money than than they thought it would because you you put in like all these you know exploitive systems but at the end of the day you've got to look at yourself in the mirror And I mean, in the past, I've, you know, there's been some places I've had the opportunity to work for and I was looking at what they were doing and I'm just like, "Mm, this isn't me. This isn't me. And it's important, you know, at the end of the day, your your company brand is important and that has value. It doesn't show up on the the balance sheet, but how players feel about your brand is incredibly important. So you need to put in systems that respect your player, and give them, you know, give, give them the respect they deserve. Like if you're, you're asking them very nicely to come and play your title, and they're agreeing to it, you, you've got to, you've got to treat them right. And if you aren't, then the players are going to, re- they're going to remember you. They're going to remember this, and you know, a couple of years down the road, when you're releasing another title, and they see, oh, this this game has this studio name on it. Oh, I remember those guys. They were the the ones who tried to fleece me for extra money with a paywall. Yes, no, I'm not downloading this. They're gonna mm-hmm. remember you. Yeah. But if you give them a good experience, like, oh yeah, I remember those guys. They made this awesome game. I had so much fun playing it. You know, I dropped like fifty bucks on it. It was one of the best games I've ever played. Sweet, I'm downloading that game. They remember you. So, you you, you need to, you know, like I, I've mentioned, like selling power and, you know, talking about like, you know, PVP games and events and, you know, putting players against each other. All that needs to be is in context of the fun of the game. You cannot sacrifice fun for money Mm -hmm. because at the end of the day, players will remember that you did that. And when you're trying to ask them to come play your next game, they know who you are. So you can't hide from that reputation. And building a strong reputation of, no, 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 fun comes first. Fun is always first, is how you get that good, that good reputation so that when players see your title splash up on their screen at the next time they see an awesome ad on you know, Facebook or you know, somebody else's game when they have that video ad pop up, you want them to be like, oh, yeah, I know these guys. They're cool. That's the experience you want. That's the emotion you want from, from buying something in your game.
1: That's great. I might have to quote you on LinkedIn for that.
0: (laughs) Go for it. Go for it.
1: (laughs) Oh man, this is great. Um, yeah, you know the other thing you you did mention is you know hyper casual games and their retention falling off you know really fast. I feel like that's the biggest opportunity, and I might be biased because you know we are making a bunch of live ops tools over here at Userwise, <laughs> but um, I feel like you know the best example of a hyper casual game that people don't really think of it, but is Subway Surfers. But like every month they put out like an entirely new experience, and that game has been going for just years and years, and and doing fantastic. And I feel like all mm-hmm. these hyper casual games they like shoot them up and then they just kind of let them die and you know if they had better uh optimization of giving players more variations of the fun that they want
0: The the thing with hyper casual games is they're they're quick to consume but they're also equally quick to make that that's sure. the that's the killer feature of hyper casual games, is the they've got they've got user acquisition down to the finest of sciences. <laughs> they can get their cost per installs so incredibly low that they don't have to make a huge amount of money uh, from each individual player in order to um, in order to make up the 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 production costs because if it only takes you like 2 weeks to produce a a, a new hyper casual title you don't need to recoup millions and millions of dollars it's like okay we o- we only made 50 grand on you know for for a small studio we only made 50 grand on that last hyper casual game okay we only paid like 5 grand for the the in salaries for people to make it 10x profit let's do it again that's true so you know if you compare that to you know like a a triple a game like when I was working in the AAA studios, I mean, a fast production time would be two or three years, with a team of you know sixty to eighty developers. When <laughs> you're working in the, the the AAA PC titles, like those, the, that would be a you know like you're you need to make fifty million dollars just to break even, yeah. let alone to make the first first dime of profit. Mm. So the the difference in terms of. Um, uh, monetization in them can be night and day so the 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 hyper casual is really focus on making new titles getting them out getting a little bit of money but i mean it's not a crazy amount of money per title but they know that players aren't going to stick around because they also didn't have to spend a huge amount of time making it if you want to have a a game that players are going to spend five ten you know five years playing you got to spend more time in in the trenches making those deep long-term meta systems and yeah. that 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 costs money up front to, to make those games <laughs> so you can't really play in the same space as a hyper casual with that because you can't churn those out in two weeks mm. um yeah you know, so it, it's it's an, it's an entirely different um you know it's a it's a bag of chips versus uh, a a five course Michelin star meal. <laughs> um, you know, sometimes sometimes you just want a bag of chips. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, so you don't always want to, to spend three hours sitting in a restaurant. Sometimes it's like, no, dude, I'm just, I just I'm just peckish. I just want some snacks. <laughs> and um, yeah, so it's it's an entirely different. You know, like they're they're both video games, but they're very different styles. Yeah. Of, of what of how they're produced and how they're consumed so That's it's fantastic. it's yeah but i mean there's a lot of stuff that can be learned from hyper casual games like as i said they as i mentioned earlier they've got user acquisition down to such a fine science <laughs> i think every single game studio in the world should be studying hyper casual games and how they get their cpi so low.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: because i mean ultimately with with free-to-play games the the question of profitability is can you get lifetime value to be higher than cost per install yeah if you can get the if you can get the ltv higher than the cpi then you can scale your game you you can invest you know a million 10 million 50 million in user acquisition and just reap the rewards but if you can get your cpi from you know 4 dollars down to 2 dollars well <laughs> you just doubled your your, your potential profit, or you've taken a game, which is eh, profitable to scalable. Yeah. Like if your LTV was only $3 and your CPI was $4, well, that's not a game that that game has no future. Kill it. Yep. But if you can lower your CPI down to $2, well, now you've got a CPI of $2 and an LTV of $3, you've got a hit. You can, you can scale that game up to a couple million users and you've got, you know, 25 million a year game. So it's, it's all about, you know, learning. You know, everybody needs, you know, the, everybody needs to be studying everybody else, <laughs> basically. And there, there's nobody in the industry that you can't learn from. Like, you, you look at any game and, yeah, it's, okay, I make first-person shooters. Why would I be looking at Candy Crush? Well, look at what Candy Crush does well. They've got, like, an interesting little social thing going on with you, you see other people on the map moving up and down well, not down, I guess, because you can't really go down, but <laughs> you, you see other people moving with you and, you know, your, your friends and you start to, to build a like, Oh man, Carrie's Carrie beat level 429. I got a beat level 429. How did she beat level 429? I've been stuck on that for a month. <laughs> and, you know, then you, you see one of your, one of your cousins catching up to you. And it's like, Oh, there's oh no way that guy's going to beat me. So, you know, can can you adapt something like that to a first person shooter game? Well, maybe. I mean, it, as I said, like the, you can you can learn so much from playing other genres. One thing you should never do is let everybody in your game just be a fan of games like yours. Um, if if everybody is like, if I'm working on an MMO and Everybody in the design team is just MMO players. That's all they play. We're going to miss big things. We're, we've got blind spots. Um, yes, you know, it's, it's the the diversity problem. You always want different different views in the room. You know, you want somebody who plays casual games talking to you on, on your first person shooter because they can bring in cool ideas from outside the genre that can revolutionize things.
1: Yeah,
0: I mean. Um, uh, a good example of this is uh, Puzzle & Dragons. It's a, a match-three game with a like RPG progression system on it. It's combined these two games. So you've got people who, are, who, who like, like RPG um, collection games, like, oh, I want to get all these heroes. I want to level them up. I want to get some cool equipment. And you introduce them to match-three titles. And you've got the match three players who are just playing, you know, the the standard match three, and you give them this entire huge metagame <laughs> that they can that they can play around with and and you know experience. And yeah, they they got really great numbers on that title because they combined two genres which hadn't really been bridged well before. Yep. Um, there's a few who tried, but none who quite got that magic sauce that 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 they they, they got onto. to so having those different views in the room having those different experiences can let you pull in the best ideas from from this genre and from this genre and from this art style and from this thing over here and you can get it and really make the the wonderful the wonderful experience together
1: i love that that's great. Okay. One more, uh, unofficial question that I always like sure. to ask because we are on the mastering retention podcast. Uh, mm-hmm. what's one tip or trick that you have for folks that are looking to increase their retention?
0: Oh, hmm, that is a t- one, just one tip. Oh gosh. Uh, <laughs> I guess fail faster. Like, and and don't be afraid of failure. One of the things that I see happen quite a bit in in well, I, I used to work in the tech industry, and this is even worse in 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 tech than it is in gaming. Is um, oh, this project is too big to fail. The company won't let it. That is the most terrifying thing you can say to your employee, because that means that they will not be able to try anything new. Um, you want to be able to try something. If it works, awesome. If it doesn't, learn from it. Don't be afraid of failing. Don't be afraid of like, okay, we're gonna try something with this title, and if it doesn't gel, well, okay, it didn't gel. We're we're not going to shut down the studio for it. You know, we 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 can try again. We can try something different. Um, you know, try uh, try an art style. You know, maybe this game works great in. You know, uh, as a as a fantasy game, maybe it would work better as a sci-fi game. Don't be afraid of trying a different art style, launching a different title. Like, okay, we've got you know, swords sword, swords and dragons online, and we've got spaceships and laser beams online. Try the two titles. Maybe one of them would work considerably better than the other. Maybe it won't, but don't be afraid to try, because that's how you get those special moments of. You know the 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 coca-cola of soda, that's how you create an entire industry, an entire genre is by trying something different and just giving it a shot. sometimes it works. most times it won't. but every now and then you get that 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 magic sauce and it just creates magic. And you're going to have to try and fail a lot of times before you get that special sauce. And if you're not, if you're not budgeting for that, both in terms of time and effort and money, uh, you're never going to get to that special sauce. If you're always playing it safe, if, you know, I, one of my, one of my hobbies is uh, lifting weights. You know, I, I lift weights.
2: Just
0: And if you're playing it safe, if you're always lifting what you've always got, you never get stronger. You've got to put more weight on the bar. You've got to risk, you know, not being able to lift it up. And when I lift, I've got, you know, these big catches uh, on the on the squat racks that if I can't hold the bar up, I can put it down and it's not going to crush my throat. <laughs> because I plan that sooner or later, I'm going to go over my limit. I'm I'm going to push it a little too far. But that's okay I'm not going to crush my throat (laughs) so when you when you plan for failure you plan for success because I'm always adding more weight on the bar I'm always getting stronger and if I didn't have those catches there and I had to worry about whether or not I could lift that bar up I'd have to be so much more cautious I'd have to be so much more um, conservative in how much I put on the weight I wouldn't get as strong as I am so it's the same thing when you're designing and developing a project. You need to be able to take those risks. You need to be able to try and push beyond what you can do. You need to you know, push the limits. Like, hey, what if we try uh, Pirates in Space with a 4X genre and a match three core game? What? Who knows? I don't know. Maybe that'd be awesome. Maybe that is the next multi-billion dollar game. I don't know.
1: But, but find you, but find your audience first, right? And make sure it's what the, they but, want but
0: at least know what audience you're targeting. You yes. don't necessarily have to find the audience, but you have to know what audience you're targeting. And if you can if you can plan to to try that and to possibly fail, then you've you've got those catches, you can give it a shot. And that's how you find the the special sauce. That's how you find the magic is by just go out there, give it a shot. And if it works, awesome. Learn from it. If it doesn't work, also awesome. Also learn from it.
1: (laughs) Love it. Okay. Caitlin, thank you so much for joining today. I feel like I learned so much. I
0: had a wonderful time. This is great.
1: Cool. Cool. All right. Well, have a good one. We'll talk soon. That we will. All right. Bye.
2: Bye.